call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 26 of Call It Friendo, the podcast where two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself, Andy J. Ritchie, and my co-host Danica Tiernan watched two films featuring explorers in the Amazon, 2015's Embrace of the Serpent and 2016's The Lost City of Zed. As always, this podcast contains spoilers for both films right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. Please follow Call It Friendo Podcast on Instagram, like the Facebook page, leave a review on iTunes or any or all of the above. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at callitfriendopodcast at gmail.com. But more to the point, why is Charlie Hunnam... What have you been up to? I've only watched the two films that I was forced to watch. Well, why didn't you... I say forced to watch. I actually enjoyed them. Both of them? Yeah. Well, I had a favorite of the two. Okay. One that I preferred. Which one do you think that was? Uh, the better one. Embrace of and the Serpent. And which one would be the better one? No, I prefer the shit one. Sorry. You preferred The Lost City of Z? Yeah. Oh, wow. We're going to have it out in this one. <laughs> Like genuinely, is that controversial? Uh, is that controversial to like the film that has like a stand a more standard narrative? Um, I, I would disagree with you there. Even by that, I think really, yeah, I think the Embrace of the Serpent has a just a a much just cleaner, nicer narrative. I think like the Lost City of Z gets lost in itself. I've got it all typed out. Let's get it on, buddy. Fine. Okay. Okay. Embrace of the Serpent or El Abrazo de la Serpiente is a 2015 Colombian drama which follows two journeys made 30 years apart by the indigenous shaman Karamakate in the Colombian Amazonian jungle, one with Teo, a German ethnographer, and the other with Evan, an American botanist, both of whom are searching for the rare plant Yacruna. It was inspired by the travel diaries of Theodor Koch-Grunberg, and Richard Evans Schultz, and dedicated to lost Amazonian cultures. The film won numerous awards and in 2016 was submitted as Colombia's entry for the category of Best Foreign Language Film at the 88th Academy Awards, making the shortlist and becoming the first Colombian film ever to receive an Academy Award nomination. Nice. The film was written and co-directed by Chiro Guerra, 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 Guerra. Have you seen any of his other films? Uh, I saw the one he made immediately after this, Birds of Prey. No, it's Birds of Something Else. It's also a really, really impressive film. But I'm like, I'm willing to go on the record here by saying, like, I think Embrace of the Serpent is really a work of genius. Like, mm. it really, really, really blew me away. Okay. I did not get that strong a reaction from it. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was good. But his other, his most recent film was his English language debut called Waiting for the Barbarians. Yes, I haven't seen that, but I'm, I'm going to watch everything yeah. he's done after watching this, to be honest. So that Waiting for the Barbarians has got uh, Johnny Depp and Robert Pattinson. Mm. What's, um, but what's did the second film mixed called reviews. again? His, so his next film after Embrace of the Serpent was called Birds of Passage. That's it, Birds of Passage. That's another one um, heavily featuring indigenous cultures. And in this case, it's kind of the um, 
effect of the opportunities of drug trafficking on indigenous cultures. Really, really good movie too. The film is almost entirely in black and white except for the final few images. Yeah, when when they're tripping Balsack. At the start of the film, we're introduced to Karamakate. He's wearing tribal clothing and is absolutely ripped. My question is, how do you get abs in the jungle in 1909? I don't know. I presume they're just pure bucolic lifestyle. He is as one ought to be, etc. Personally, that was my big problem with the film. <laughs> really? <laughs> no. <laughs> Oi. Yeah, I was just saying there going, oh, why has he got these abs? Don't believe it. I mean, if we're talking about inappropriate physicality for one's professional position, uh, I would I would move swiftly to Lost City of Z. A native man approaches in a boat carrying a white explorer. The native man is called Manduka. He's a former rubber slave who's acting as a guide and servant for German explorer Theodor von Martius. Von Martius is sick and looking for the cure, which turns out to be the plant called Yakruna. Karamakate agrees to accompany Manduka and Theodore to locate the plant. Before that, as a short-term fix, he blows a white powder, which he refers to as the sun semen, up Theodore's nose, allowing Theodore a little respite from his illness. Hmm. Now, you've been to Colombia before. Yes. Has, have you had the sun semen up your nose? No, I did not get the sun semen up uh, my nose. I got some, like, native people cocaine. Uh, mm. on, a, on a tour to the Lost City in Santa Marta, very close to where the Lost City of Z was filmed, in fact. We'll, we will keep going through the story, but I, I, I want to know, um, at what point did it kind of dawn on you that this is, this is Heart of Darkness from the native perspective? I did see the Heart of Darkness and Apocalypse Now similarities, but I never really considered it from the native perspective. Racist. So let me just process that now. Hmm... Ahimena. Yeah, I guess uh, the evils of the white man are certainly made clear. Is it wrong that I preferred the story from the white man perspective <laughs> in the second film? Well, particularly because the story is worse is told. Am I bad? Yeah, but it's got it's got Charlie Hunnam in it. Oh, that's one of my major problems with it. I mean, all right, look. For me, it's genuinely hard to articulate how impressive I found Embrace, uh, Embrace of the Serpent. Like, <laughs> I can tell that it pisses you off. Uh, <laughs> I refuse to <laughs> to praise the genius of it. I think it's good. I, th I do think it's a good film. Like, I couldn't even like. I to, in order to like properly confirm for myself how impressed I was, I needed to, to look up the budget of it, like, uh, which was one point four million. And like that, that would complete it as a trump card for me to, if for anybody who would question cinema's perseverance as an art form, I swear to God, because like the amount of fucking duds that get made for a hundred times that, and I won't bother naming them, but like, I mean, I don't know, like what, what do those films lack that this has? And it's just like. It just heart and intention and ideas and that's enough do you know what i mean like really you've reminded me of a, a friend of mine when we were younger he used to always say i don't care what the budget of a film was because i have to pay the same amount for a ticket i always thought that was uh that was an interesting take on things he just did not give a shit he's like i don't care what it cost cost me the same it's all it's all it's so you get, you get zero credit for making a beautiful film for 1.4 million. No, but I right, okay. 
fair enough. I like I I would concede your friend's point there, but my point would be not quite. I would. How, I thought he was an idiot. Uh, not quite. <laughs> not quite how little it cost, but how much other things cost would be more my point. Yeah, and like sure. I do think one point four million is nothing. Yeah, compared to comparison, compared to this, nothing. Like so, there's so many films that just fucking burn their money. Like I, when like it's clear here. I don't think they constructed anything for this. If they did, it was probably minimal. I would say most of the actors will probably never work again. <laughs> and not because they're bad actors. They're also not actors. They're not actors, exactly. They're from the Chloe Zhao school of acting. But there's just so much heart and intention and soul in the film that it, for me, it just achieves higher than most. Honestly, here comes the hyperbole. Most things I've ever seen. I, th- I think this is, I genuinely, Andy, I think this is one of the best films I've ever seen. I'm not exaggerating. Damn, I wish I, I wish I got that from it. Like, genuinely, I wish I had that reaction. I just didn't. I w- but we can analyze why that is, I guess. I almost watched this again before uh, this podcast. Do you think it's important that you've been to Colombia? No. Do you think that's an, a, an aspect? No. No, I don't think so. I think that there was um I think there was a point in watching it when I kind of it all came together for me what I thought they were up to with it and I just thought this is like just a this is a work of genius on so many levels not just like you can take the economics of filmmaking but also like what it, like the idea of flipping the going native storyline from the to the perspective of the indigenous and pulling it off so well and not making it a fucking dumb judgmental way to look at history you know so many things that i enjoyed about this but here look get talking about the story we can break it down as we go as the credits begin to roll we see some lovely footage of snakes being born the serpent in the film's title refers to the amazon river that flows through south america winding its way across like a snake Karamakati even refers to the river as the son of the anaconda. Thus, the main title refers to the journey of the protagonists on their trek through the wilderness in the arms of the river. As the credits fade out, we see an older Karamakati, significantly less ripped now, but still wearing the same outfit. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like I'm being insulting now to your favourite ever film. No, that's a very... (laughs) <laughs> it's a very occidental way to view to view <laughs> Karamakati. Hey, listen, mutton I was dressed as, as lamb. Out, you uh, just dissected Karamakati as mutton dressed <laughs> as lamb. <laughs> all I'm saying is, you could change your clothes in thirty years. All right, all right. Is that racist? Is that racist to say that? Probably. But listen, I'll be honest. I, I'm going to hand it out in all directions. I'm firing in all directions because Karen McCarthy is greeted by a hipster-looking American botanist called Evan who looks like he should be a member of the National. Yes, I agree. Yeah, he does. Boom, roasted Evan. Evan has a copy of Theodore's published journals showing that this is around 30 years after our opening scene. Evan is also looking for Yakruna and Karen McCarthy agrees to take him to the plant. It was kind of around this time when he produced Theo's book that I I kind of figured what the idea for the the film was which was just to really the fact that you had two sets of diaries by two such similar travelers going to such a a region and that those that those cultures were surviving and other ones were not 
despite the fact that the purposes of both visits were to preserve a kind of knowledge. And no matter what, even though they were preserving that knowledge, those cultures were still fading. And I thought that was just a, a very interesting, wholly tragic way to look at like the inevitable ousting of uh, that kind of indigenous culture by uh, Occidental influence. And once that clicked, once it clicked with me that it, like he had seen these two sets of storylines and figured, okay, if I just flick the perspective on this, um, have you ever heard of the philosophical theory uh, Orientalism? No, go ahead. Okay, so Orientalism would be the idea that uh, in Western narratives, um, the Orient or Africa, basically um, like um, societies that were colonized, were given a kind of a mystical quality that was sort of patronizing how can magic be patronizing <laughs> these magical mystics well like who said that was it a wise man with a big beard it was a man called edward said um and like okay have you ever seen uh, the baz Luhrmann film australia yeah right it's a great film i love it there's your number one uh, example of um orientalism uh, you know the the whole structure whoa, whoa 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 are you telling me that Aborigines are not magical people. <laughs> I, I am telling you that me. Baz Luhrmann said sorry for displacing Aboriginal children by making them magic in his film. That is what I'm saying. In all seriousness, I really enjoy that. I, I know people hate that film. I actually really liked it. <laughs> I enjoyed it in the cinema when I watched it. I was working in a cinema at the time when it came out. I did not enjoy it. No, I, did. I thought it was very stupid. I think I'm easily sold on stupid uh, Western narrative films. It honestly never occurred to me, like, the importance or anything of it this being from the tribal perspective and not from a Western perspective. It never really occurred to me. I just take the I take the the, the film as I see it. It's just a I never I don't I don't think about any overarching larger how it fits with the history of the world or anything. I'm just viewing it as well. You see, film, I, I well, you see, I think I don't think it would be as interesting if the tribal perspective it played out like you would expect it to. Like if I phrased it to you like this, like a heart of darkness story from the tribal perspective, you would figure that you know it would be a story about white devils, wouldn't you? Yes, but this isn't. Well, there's the the. I guess we know that the these two specific guys are not bad guys, but they are kind of they're still symptoms of the overall problem. They're both accused of just being after rubber. Yeah, and but the, well, one of them, as it transpires, slightly is, but it it become it's irrelevant to the storyline in the end. I, like I think the, probably the most sinister thing that a white dude does in it is does not want to give a compass to a particular tribe. Should we keep going with the narrative of this or? Yes, go on. In 1909, Theodore and the guys arrive at a local tribe. The native kids enjoy his drawings of exotic animals and his dance performance with Manduka. Even Karamakati starts to warm up to him a little. However, when they leave, Teo can't find his compass and, in a scene that plays out like a slow-motion car crash, accuses one of the native boys of having stolen it. When it's revealed that it was, in fact, the chief of the tribe who took it, Teo tries to wrestle it back before being forced to leave it, ruining the fact that he has left the tribe with advanced technology which could destroy their traditional methods of navigation. Karen McCarthy is not very impressed and points out that knowledge belongs to all men. Yeah, I mean, that, and 
that is that's a very interesting perspective uh, from which to look at that moment because Theo is right, but so is Karmakati. I just took it from the perspective of, oh, that's my fucking compass, mate. Give me it back. <laughs> Don't touch my shit. Yeah, yeah, I, I did get that that too. I like, but I, I mean, yeah, I didn't get that that was the re that the reason that he was getting angry was because he didn't want to. Um, yeah. Until afterwards, I did not get that. I just assumed he needed the compass, and he was like, "Oh, we can't get up the river without the compass." Until he finally went like, "Oh, they sh- shouldn't use compasses because you know they're magical. Mm. They should use their magic instead." Further up the river, the trio runs into a one-armed rubber slave. That sounds bad, but that's what he is. He's a one-armed rubber slave who's desperately collecting rubber for his Colombian captors. He begs Manduka to kill him. After a stressful standoff, Manduka fires the gun away from the man, choosing not to kill him. Karamakate throws the rifle into the river. How well-versed are you on all the rubber boom stuff? Um, Relatively. I have an idea about it, yeah. I just looked it up on Wikipedia after the film and went, oh, the Amazonian rubber boom. This looks interesting. Next, the three men come upon a mission occupied by a group of young boys and overseen by a monk. The boys are forced to speak only Spanish and are also whipped brutally. In fact, when Manduka catches the monk beating some of the boys, he chooses to kill him. The three men make a quick exit, leaving the mission in chaos. That was a very, very brief summary of what happened there. It's our third mission uh, over the course of the podcast. We had the Mosquito Coast, the mission, and now mm-hmm. this mission. Uh, yeah, the mission looks like a prison when they get there. Um, it's really um, evocative, that way of uh, presenting it. It's like you said, we've had, we've seen so much of missions at this point. I feel, I feel pretty well-versed in South American missions. Yeah. You, that, uh, it was an interesting thing. Just it felt, it felt it was like business as usual. It's an interesting thing watching this scene because despite the fact that, okay, the uh, priest or the monk or whatever is clearly the villain in the piece, you're also looking at him going, <laughs> like, this is, this guy is like, yeah, there were two other guys here and then they left and they never came back. And now it's just me in the middle of it. Like, I mean, we we spoke, um, we were watching the bounty about like uh, that sailor who like dies so far from home and how that was like, you know, in outer space. Here's this Jesuit monk who's essentially... Yeah, he's in outer space trying to make aliens into Christians. You know, if you think about it in the perspective of how big the world was then, it's got to have produced some neurosis in people being in the middle of the jungle like that. But he was with God. Yeah, 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 that's true. But, uh, you know, the the indigenous people refer to the Amazon as um, the land God, uh, God neglected to finish. That's what the indigenous people call it. Yeah. As a kind of That's a, how they refer to their own land. No, as a trite response. Well, I don't know. Actually, to be honest, I don't know. Do they say that? But I know that that's the quote that uh, opens up um, Fitzcarraldo, the film Fitzcarraldo. Thirty years later, Evan and Karamakate sailing up river come across the same mission. The following scenes are supposedly based on real events. The mission is now occupied by a group of religious zealots who are seen self-flagellating. They are followers of a Brazilian man who claims to be the Messiah. His child wife is sick, so he calls on Karamakati to cure her. Although she is suffering from, from leishmaniasis, which I just learned what that is this week, he successfully heals her. 
Then Karamakati gives the Messiah and his followers a poison concoction which leads to a big cannibalistic orgy where the followers eat the Messiah. Cue Karamakate and Evan making a sharp exit. And I said this scene felt very reminiscent of Apocalypse Now. Yeah. I don't know, like, and a number of things. The Siege of Munchen would be one. I don't know if you ever heard of that. One of the most, like, interesting things that ever happened in history was um, a bunch of Anabaptists descended upon the city of Munster because it was announced pamphlets were spread throughout Europe that the Messiah was going to appear there again. So a guy that everybody believed was the Messiah on account of the advent of the printing press and the Reformation just basically took over the city and it just descended into a big mad orgy. True story. Nice. The Siege of Munchen. Very much look uh, worth looking up. And there's a, a book. Okay, I will. There, Is, are there any films of that? No, but there's a... V- any Western narratives of it? There's a very good book called Q by Luther Blissett. By Luther Blissett, the former AC Milan striker. Aha, there you the go. Former, so you former Watford. It's, uh, okay, so Q was written by... No, wait, are you serious? No, listen <laughs> to this. Q is written by okay, four go. Italian authors that they uh, like they wrote it together and as their uh, pen name they yeah the, it's Luther Blissett yeah the the AC Milan uh, yeah, former yeah. former Watford and AC Milan striker that's correct okay. yeah nice yeah. wow that's genius Tom, that's Tom York of Radiohead uh, fame owns the rights to film adaptation if it ever happens wow that's some good trivia mm. okay i need to check that out that's nice Back in 1909, Karamakate, Manduka, and Teo finally make it to the village where the Yakruna tree grows. The residents are preparing for invasion by the Colombians. Karamakate finds a group of natives sitting around getting wasted on Yakruna homebrew. As the Colombians <laughs> arrive, he sets fire to the tree as the villagers flee. Noticeably, the Colombians arrive off screen, which is probably because of the 1.4 million budget. Yeah, because we just hear the sound, the sounds of the Colombians. Whoop whoop. Yeah, that was enough. The for sound me, of I the suppose. Colombians. Fair enough, though. That is. I would have liked. I would have liked to have seen a Colombian's face personally. Maybe an arm. Maybe a shin. <laughs> that would have really helped sell it for me. I was all right with the invisible Colombians on this occasion. It's a scary prospect. The invisible Colombian with their with the sun semen up their nose. Back in the later time period, Karamakati leads Evan towards the only living Yakruna tree. When they arrive, it turns out that the plant has only one flower, which Karamakati goes to prepare. Evan protests, stating that he has actually come to the jungle to secure rubber to help the war effort. At this point in the film, I had completely forgotten that Evan was American. And hmm. because of his glasses and hipster facial hair, I thought he was German. Oh, so you thought he was and a Nazi? I really, really... I really, really liked the idea of Nazis chasing a resource in the war effort because it felt like Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I was really disappointed when I remembered that he was actually from Boston. (laughs) Well, he reminds you. I thought he was German as well, though, to be honest. Uh, And similarly, I thought, oh, those crazy Nazis often, like, what kind of stuff have they got going on? Zaraba. We need Zaraba. They probably have other Nazis, like, hunting blue whales for magic blubber or something, you crazy Nazis. I want so many more stories of that, of, like, hunting for either, okay, we could go for supernatural artifacts like Indiana Jones, Hmm. or just anything, just, like, trying to secure things for the war effort. 
you know? Yeah. You, hey, who, who says I, I want things from a Western perspective? You should look up the, in, in the North Sea. Is the North Sea the one up by Scandinavia? The North Sea is the one off the coast of Scotland, yes. Okay, so there, there's these weather stations up there that changed possessions just constantly during the war. Because, like, the, the seas were so stormy up there, but having access to the weather was, like, you know, it was a big thing for the war effort. So you could look up their story. It's just constantly switching sides because there was never too many people to man them either because they couldn't afford to just send a bunch of ships up there. So it was always smaller teams taking them over, then they'd get taken over again, and other people would flee between weather stations. It was a whole... Uh, you know, uh, Hogan's hero kind of a comedy effort, you know, I'll get you the next time taking over these weather stations. Quality. Yeah, yeah, it's good. At the end of the film, Evan drinks the Yakruna brew and starts tripping Major Ballsack, <laughs> synchronic style. This is the only part of the film in color as we see some tribal paintings. Very trippy. When Evan wakes up, Karamakati isn't there, leaving Evan no choice but to trudge off on his way back home to Brooklyn probably, by the looks of them. <laughs> the end. Okay, so I'm going to make my case. Do you want to hear my case? I think you should, yeah, because I've, uh, going through the, the story point by point doesn't really seem to do your... doesn't seem to do the film justice. All right. The way that I've described it thus far. So one can take it for granted that the film's co-writer and director, Ciro Guerra and a cinematographer, uh, David Gallego, are very talented craftsmen. Um, almost from the poster, you can tell that certainly the cinematography is, yeah, he's, he's done a good job. But it was around halfway through that I like I thought, okay, Guerra might be a genius, and this is certainly a work of genius. Because it's like, okay, this is an adaptation of two Occidental Explorers' diaries of the Amazon, 20 years apart. And the film's central play, as I've said, is like flipping the script on the heart of darkness narrative and telling it from an indigenous perspective. That's the central play. That's what they're making. And more blunter hands at work in this, it could have easily been just a boring, historically judgmental story. And it, what we have is that couldn't legitimately could not be further from from that. It is not judgmental at all. Films like a meditation on like whole cultures disappearing and disappeared into the rearview mirror. And like objectively, it's the story of um, Karmakate, a shaman who appears to be living in hermitage from his own people. And his two separate attempts to bring white explorers in touch with this sacred plant. And the stories like are cut together that they almost appear to be happening simultaneously. And that might be one of the film's greater strokes of genius from a craft point of view but like the idea that knowledge and the possession of knowledge is symbiotic to culture is probably the film's biggest theme and while it does not assert the superiority of one culture it slightly bemoans the inevitable ousting of one by the by another and each and every happening in the film is poetic and constructive in terms of the story's goals and where it's going and that together with the acting and the casting and the cinematography and the pacing for me it was like almost a religious experience of a film because it, it's so deep what it's talking about and fuck off with your face i see your face <laughs> um, i know my, my face is just like is one of it's not that I it, i don't dislike this film at all i, I like the film but i just it wasn't this I don't know, transportative. Is that a word? For me, the experience of watching this film didn't 
it didn't transport me to another another world. It wasn't this kind of. The mo- I want to say orgasmic. That feels so. No, 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 no. <laughs> it'd be it'd be close. You know, like the the closest thing I can remember. Yeah, I just never experienced any of that. The closest thing I can remember to like experiencing something like this while watching a film, really, because the element of surprise in there as well was the first time I watched um, City of God in the cinema. Mm. And I would say I would say that I'd say City of God is is a better film to, uh, than this, and City of God is one of my favorite films ever. But I just remember just not being prepared for what a journey that I was taken on when I saw it first, and neither with this. Like really, I watched this. I put this on at six in the morning, and Belen got up at about eight o'clock, and my jaw was on the fucking floor. <laughs> I was so blown away by it. I wish uh, I just wish I had that sensation. It just didn't do it for me. That's a pity. But I now I, I now the the onus is on you to make the case for the lost city of Z. Are you ready for it? Uh, yeah, but let me just say about uh, embrace of the serpent compared like as a foreign like I was trying to think if it's maybe just because it was a foreign language film. But then I was thinking no, like a separation and Sondi, both of those which were the same week. I far preferred compared to this. Are you prepared to make the case in defense of the lost city of Z? Do you want me to do that now before you start? Uh, or should I do it at the end? No, 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 no. You can wait. Well, no, I didn't. I didn't hate Lost City of Z, and you didn't hate Embrace of the Serpent. But clearly, no, no, yeah. no. But I just—it's a—it's a preference. I had one pretty major issue with uh, Lost City of Z, which will come to the. I do agree that it starts to get a bit lost towards the end. City of Z <laughs> and Zed. It's Zed. Don't you dare say Lost City of Z. Zed, it's lost fine, City whatever. Zed. Who gives a fuck? Thank you. All right. So The Lost City of Zed is James Gray's 2009, 2009? No, it's 2016. 2016 biographical adventure film, which today will suffer greatly from comparison with Embrace of the Serpent. For you. <laughs> How many of Gray's films have you seen? I was thinking about that. I've seen, uh, I watched The Yards in the cinema. Mm. I don't. Th- I don't think I've seen... Two Lovers. I haven't seen The Immigrant. I still haven't watched Ad Astra. Basically, very, very little. I've seen Ad Astra. I love and what was the other one? Ad Astra. Yeah, see, I, w- I would really like to watch Ad Astra now off the back of this. But this was the thing about James Gray, because similarly to, I think, how he was surprised that he got offered Lost City of Zed, mm. I was surprised to find out that he had done it. Like, this, when I think of James Gray, I think of, like, uh, a guy who does New York-based characters, small character films. It's interesting that now he's making these extremely big adventure-style films. Well, Ad Astra, I have to well, say, is, Astra, is just... worth the, the paper it was printed on. I mean, it's a big story, <laughs> and I can include my own girlfriend in this. Like When people said, I didn't like it, I thought it was boring... I was kind of thinking, well, you're probably not great at watching films in general. You might be a, a, a an eight <laughs> at watching films, but it, like, because it is Ad Astra is a really, really significant uh, achievement in terms of like all the fucking garbage that goes into play about what would space travel be like, and I don't know. He really achieved something with that film. I was a huge fan of it, but less so of this one probably. And the themes are similar. Have you seen We Own the Night? No, that's a big bunch of shit. Don't bother. I've got them all lined up and uh, ready to go, but they're very Joaquin Phoenix heavy throughout. 
Yes, indeed. He's in Two Lovers, We Own the Night, The Yards, The Immigrant. He's in the first four films. Oh, wow, okay. He's been doing a lot of work with old Jamie Gray. Anyway, this one, Lost... Well, see, I, I was always aware of James Gray's films. I just never got around to watching them, hence the podcast. Indeed, that's why we're here. My other justification, my main justification of... Uh, let me, I'll give my argument and justification for this film then right now. Go I would for say, it. number one... Okay, so even from the opening, I was just immediately involved and following the story, and there's a lot of pace and urgency to it. Maybe it's that I just like things to be constantly happening all the time. That's certainly part of it. Mm. But also, Darius Conji's cinematography, again, yeah, I mean, he was a cinematographer on things thing like Seven... I mean, he's, he's, he's absolutely beautiful. It's filmed on 35 millimeter film and it just, it looks amazing throughout the entire film. It's visually is very appealing. The camera placements, the shots that they achieved, I just think it looks great. Uh, I think the actors are fine. I mean, Charlie Hunnam wasn't the first choice. It was supposed to be Bradley Pitts. And then it was going to be Benedict Cumberbatch until eventually Charlie Hunnam got the gig. But Charlie Hunnam, I'll say this for him, he very much reminds me. This I'll first I'll give a, I'll give the uh, negative point, which is the first time I ever saw Charlie Hunnam was in Russell T Davies' Queers Folk, getting a rim job. And he job. was paired, with, yeah, getting a rim job off of Aidan Gillen. And there's something very similar about Charlie Hunnam and Aidan Gillen that they both at Are times not good actors. have this, yeah, incredibly stilted, really, really bad acting style. But there's a scene about, uh, okay, Charlie Hunnam is beautiful. There's that. Yeah, he's a good But then man. also there's, there's a scene about halfway through the film or about two thirds where he is being accused by the big kind of, <laughs> by the by the great archetype that you don't see in films too often the kind of eric cartman character <laughs> the fat lazy guy <laughs> the fat greedy lazy guy eric de bruceless who's yeah exactly uh, angus mcfadgen who's uh, laying into hunnam he's brilliant and the way that the, the way that hunnam comes back at him i was like okay you sold it you sold me I'm what in. does he say I'm to him again 100 percent I can't remember. I don't remember the exact wording, but he just have, he just think, he doesn't get angry. He, he just shoots him down. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think he said so something about rank and metal. Anyway, but it's it's all good. So stuff. So yeah, Charlie Hunnam is my major problem with the film, uh, and he plays. It's fair enough. He's not a great actor. I understand. Go ahead. He plays Percy Fawcett. It's the story of Percy Fawcett and his various quests to find ancient civilization in the Amazon rainforest. Conrad and Coppola, yada, 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 yada. Gray was inspired to tell the story after reading an article in The New Yorker, which I read today, uh, which was later expanded into a book, which is better than the film, mainly, and I'm not that I don't mean that as a way to denigrate the film, I just mean the article is has so much more going on and it is really interesting and I really, really recommend people read it. It's available free on the New Yorker website. It's a long one, but a good one. So this is the second time I've watched this film and all the things I liked the first time got better and everything I didn't got worse. So this is one of those uh, odd cul-de-sacs whereby if somebody told me they found it boring, I'd have to admit that it is... Uh, but it's a compelling kind of boring, which I think we'll be able to figure out between the two of us. So the film opens in Ireland in 1905, uh, with a stag being hunted by a bunch of army toffs on horseback. I assume your people have a name for this kind of thing, don't you? Um, stag hunting? Oh. Going stag? Stagging? 
All right. Okay. Gotcha. But you, I mean, I've certainly haven't partaken in this. So, how much about Fawcett's past and lineage did you learn? As you're normally good at this kind of crap. From from Wikipedia, I had to look through at what he was supposed to have done, but there were some arguments. There were a few people uh, commenting. I saw there were some reviewers and other people saying that in reality, Fawcett was basically a big scumbag and waster who never actually discovered anything or did anything of much value. Ah, there's always so I think there were some people. dissenting voices. I mean, they, they, that just doesn't seem like the case, to be honest, from everything I read today. One, one of the other issues I would have with the film is uh, the negative aspects of his personality that it goes at. I don't think it judges nearly harshly enough. Um, and I think some of the creases in the relationships are ironed out far too smoothly. But anyway, um, I mean, he had an adventurous life. He was quite a, kind of a Robert Baden-Powell type fella. His like father burnt through two family fortunes, a la Barry Lyndon. And um, he was fighting to get those back or at least get his name back. So in a bit of subtle scripting, Fawcett is yelled at near the start that there is no path there in the direction he's headed as he catches the the stag that they're all after. And soon after, we meet Sienna Miller, who's playing his wife, Cheeky. And she highlights for us one of the glaring holes in the center of the film, which is, for me, Charlie Hunnam. Like, Hunnam is good-looking, but has all the charisma of a picture of himself. You don't need charisma if you look like him. Disagree. I think we're at the end of the period... Where Holly, I think Hollywood has tried to push Charlie Hunnam as a leading man on us enough. Now I don't, I think I don't, I don't think he'll get another shot. I think if you can do to this, be fair, he was third choice for this. Yeah, fair enough, and I think he should have been because I don't think he is. I don't think he's good enough to hold this down. To cast him as your leading man to play off Sienna Miller and then later Robert Pattinson um, put me in just the dreadful position of, of wanting to watch films about them instead. There was a few people I saw noted that it should have been Robert Pattinson cast as the lead. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, this is the thing. is like the two best people at playing Batman, and we've discussed this before, are probably Michael Keaton and Christian Bale because they both look a bit mad. They both look like they're a bit cracked, as you fucking should be if you're going to be playing Batman. And, like, somebody who's going to play somebody who just frequently abandon Occidental society to go off and try and find civilization in the Amazon is bound to be a bit cracked. This is one of the reasons why Klaus Kinski works so well in Fitzcarraldo or Aguirre, The Wrath of God, because you can really buy him being a mad bastard. And at no point did I get the uh, did I get this from Hun, uh, Hunnam, but I'm the whole time getting it from Robert Pattinson. Do you know what I mean? Supposedly, this film is the one that got Robert Pattinson uh, the shot at Batman after Matt Reeves watched Lost City of Zed. Wow. Okay. On the money, Danica. All right. So anyway, at a big Protestant ball, Fawcett is not invited for brandy because he's got no buttons on a his Protestant blazer. ball. I mean, spade is spade there, Andy. There's no Catholics at that <laughs> ball. Enough. All right. That's true. So the whole sequence brings to the fore for me what is the film's greatest strength, which is the cinematography. Even contrasted with the hunt, the like indoor Edwardianism of the whole shebang um, feels like achingly civilized and claustrophobic compared to most of the film. That for me is, pro- is probably the biggest strength is... Uh, how mood is conveyed in the cinematography because almost every time you get 
out of doors or to the jungle in this film. For me, anyway, there's a bit of an emotional lift. You don't have emotion, so who cares? I enjoy every aspect of this film. I enjoyed every scene. Really? I'm on board for the whole thing. Wow. Yeah, I'm on board for the whole thing. I'm on board for the parts where they're riding through the fields, falling off their horses, trying to shoot a deer. I'm on board for the big Protestant ball. It's very reminiscent of all the big Protestant balls I've attended <laughs> throughout my life and continue to attend uh, with secret handshakes and the like, Masonic style. <laughs> uh, yeah, even what you're accusing Charlie Hunnam of being like just a big boring nothingness of no charisma. Yeah, I hate him. I don't know. His interactions with Sienna Miller didn't bother me. I just think she's so much better than him in this that it bothered me. That's fair enough, but I don't think that's what this film is trying to do. I don't think it is trying to. I don't think it is trying to go into the psychology of Percy. I disagree. Falsa. I think, I it's, think just it's just going into his that. actions. I think it's all about that. I I don't see that at all. Okay, we'll we'll get to that. Uh, because I I think the thing the things that are happening are just it's just what was done from a more modern perspective. You're thinking like, why the fuck is this guy leaving his wife and family and all this and going away and. And for multiple but years the film at a time pushes that narrative at you as well. I don't see that. It's a, it's a basically a throwaway comment from his wife just getting annoyed, going like, eh. "Well, I mean, that- but that still feels like a modern perspective." I don't, I don't, I don't think that's what the film's about at all. I didn't feel that way. All right. I feel like it's more. I feel like it's a much more simple story of the evil westernized version of of uh, of of the first film. It's just telling the story of, like, the white man going and exploring and looking for these ancient civilizations. I I don't know. I think he's kind of a John Smith figure or a Roger Caseman type figure that gets a kind of a a freedom from that that exploration. Like, John Smith, um, Colin Farrell from The New World, he famously, he wrote a series of books in which he wrote about himself in the third person. And they were all about, like, kind of chronicled the idea of finding something apart from um, real constricted conservative society in Europe in the New World, where you could just work the land and do, do your own thing. And now, despite the fact that in real life, the city that and the civilization, oh, we need to get to that, uh, which uh, um, Fawcett was looking for in the Amazon, he did presume, like, what he much like. Christopher Columbus thought he was getting to India and didn't think of the existence of America. Rather than proving that civilization grew out of the Amazon, he thought he was proving that uh, Europeans had been to the Amazon before and started civilization there. That's that's um, what what he was trying to prove with his old theories, which obviously they don't go near in the in the in the film. Yeah, probably best yeah. that they stay away from that one. In order to get some more buttons for his blazer and maybe to. Um, regain family street cred let's say and to get to wait 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 here's the bit there's okay no i'll come back to it later sorry when you when we come to the first world war we can deal with some of these things okay go ahead so to get some more family street cred and get the chance to sip brandy with with the riches of leith leith <laughs> <laughs> uh, <Leith>, please <laughs> new haven so he he signs up um, to lead an ex uh, an expedition to uh, better define the borders between Bolivia and Brazil. He bids goodbye to the, uh, to Cheeky just as uh, she de- she announces that she's once more up the duff. And uh, if the film tries to communicate any ty- kind of disapproval of this move, I didn't really sense it. 
he meets Robert Pattinson's Costin aboard the boat over, and uh, once more he's uh, and he's like this character is instantly more interesting than Fawcett. The, yeah, he is. He just is instantly. Um, <laughs> he's got facial hair. The t- uh, so the two set off, and the the film gets a real big lift. I found uh, we get to take in some landscapes. We get to see an opera in the desert, and we meet a a Bond villain, Robert Barron, and then they set down a river. They're doing so against the advice of the British government, anyway. So, how engaged are you at this point? Yeah, fully. I enjoyed everything everything so far because I think just before they come across the the Bond villain guy is where they come to the big opera yeah. in the middle of the jungle. It is, yeah. Which is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's just, again, I just felt like it was like a nice, it was impressive. It's really presenting you with this surreal imagery that uh, yeah, it's great. It's, evokes strong emotions. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. And then the Bond villain guy, that actor, he was the original uh, Django. Really? Was that Frank Nero? Franco Nero, yeah. Oh, okay. With some indigenous guides and some expendable lackeys, the ki- the kind of um, chumps Indiana Jones would have hired, let's say, we head down the river, and mm-hmm. then there's some arrow attacks and some river madness and some talk of El Dorado, and then the movie, for me anyway, gets a major lift when he finds some pottery where there ought to be nothing. And yeah, I got a major boost from that, and I was really, really into it from that point um and then all of a sudden he's back home and he's made to go uh, before the super adventure club to testify my criticism of roland joffe and the mission of how action was filmed this is what i was talking about like when i said in the mission the filming on the boats i didn't feel any danger with the arrows and i think it was just the filming of the time but the way arrows were firing here yeah it's just a completely different like you can I mean, that's uh, this is modern film techniques, but like you could feel the force of the, the arrows twock. and you could feel the yes, danger. Yes, I agree of them. with you. Yeah, yeah, certainly. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, the, yeah, and that yeah, was my criticism uh, like, of the uh, mission. That time when an arrow like goes right through that book, that got a uh, Jesus Christ yeah. out of me. That uh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. would agree with you there. So then anyway, he's he's made to go before the Super Adventure Club to testify before the guys who um, found Paddington's family initially. And there's a rousing mm. speech where, uh, as though they're watching the film, actually, the gathered crowd requires Sienna Miller and Robert Pattinson to chime in in order to make it interesting, to convince the crowd to drop their unreasonably racist presumptions. And it's the kind of sequence that is at once fairly engaging and a little bit tiresome, and it's all down to Hunnam, in my opinion. Also, for sure, the real-life version of this, sto- the, the story of this, will be used by Adam Curtis in a, one of his documentaries someday, I'm sure of it, because it's... it's very much a the, the his sort of bag the idea of um just hopeless devotion to the idea of empire anyway it's around this time that a big fat useless twat descended from robert de bruce <laughs> <laughs> elbows his way on board the next expedition the group will undertake and he's exactly what the film needs at this time uh, and his toughish vibes work well to illustrate Tell us what might be attractive in a character such as Fawcett. So Fawcett is, as I said, like a John Smith sort of Roger Caseman type narrative. And the trials they get put through by Robert uh, Bruceless in the jungle is definitely the film's best section, in my opinion. Particularly, there's a very interesting part where they um, 
saying at some natives, which really did happen. Also, they discovered that the, the natives have a serum which stuns fish so they, can, they don't have to kill more than they would do, which is very interesting as well and is also 100% accurate. Um, but meanwhile, he, he's Robert de Bruceless, uh, Angus McFadden, is that his name? Angus McFadden. Just, be, just being a big fan. Robert de Bruce from uh, Braveheart. Yeah. And from a film called Robert the Bruce, but him just being a big fat useless twat is quite amusing. He's very good at it. I think he's brilliant. You don't, yeah, it is good because how I can't think recently of characters like that in modern films where they're kind of fat and malicious. It's it's, it's like <laughs> yeah, it's a lost it's art, almost maybe. like it is. It's tying it's tying together the concept that someone is fat because they're greedy and somehow like morally a bad person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is old school. The 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 it's fat like, baddie. It's like Mrs. Trunchbull and their, and their or fat, something. Fatness yeah. is part of their fatness is like part of is a character flaw that shows that they're a bad person oh jesus that's old school but it's it's funny how much you end up hating that guy yeah like when he's just he's he's stolen some of their but he's also de- he's also delightful he's, he's so funny <laughs> like he wants to abandon equipment he calls the indians savages he eats, yeah, as you said, yeah, he eats yeah. the chocolate sent by Sienna Miller, which... which He's like Piggy or something. <laughs> which, oh. yeah, he is from Lord of the Flies, which Charlie Hunnam was going was gonna to share. He pours paraffin oils on the supplies. That's, that's the best one. When they let him go, his leg is almost falling off. It's He's basically dying, and they give him a horse to get back to civilization, and he pours oil over the rest of their supplies. I mean... That's just insane. And Charlie Hunnam is being so respectful to him. Even and if, do you remember when he falls off the boat and the, all his only job on the boat is don't move, <laughs> just sit there. I thought that was very funny. Do you know what happened with him in the end, the real life character? Well, I mean, according to the according to the film, he was in the Arctic or something on an expedition, and then he just he he again he kind of left the expedition. He got he got went in a big huff. Yeah, he mutinied with a crew of with a, a, in in at the head of a group of three. So him and two other guys tried to mutiny nice. a ship of um oh, over twenty. Anyway, and they were set adrift in the Arctic Ocean and, yeah, never seen again. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) Fitting end. Anyway, the expedition gets close, but ultimately must turn back because of Robert de Bruce's arsehole tactics. Fawcett gets home only to find his son has grown into another actor more charismatic than him. And this is where the film really kind of loses me a bit. Because uh, I think we as audience... I would, ag- I would agree that at this point, this I would agree that the, the weakest sequence is after the First World War. Oh, well, we'll, well... Towards the end. We'll talk about the First World War as well. Cause, okay, I think we as audience members all jump aboard the Tom Holland train and remain there even after Holland himself who plays the eldest son, of course, abandons it for the faucet mobile. Holland's son is, like, understandably furious that it, uh, with his father for abandoning, them, the, uh, for abandoning them and their mother. He speaks up and is struck fairly viciously, actually. It's nothing. All right, it's nothing fair by enough. scratch. Uh, it was a light tap. Okay, any rhyme or reason that the fellow, uh, to the film is a bit lost for me after that, and we'll get to why, because then, then we have World War I. Uh, World War I is included, because it happened, I think. 
uh, and an entirely baffling sequence featuring a fortune teller that could have been in Black Adder happens. Apparently, yeah, I don't know why that fortune teller was doing on allied lines just like in a trench. Apparently that did happen. I do agree also, that was strange. But I mean, oh, well, there you go. Its inclusion is fucking baffling to me. Here was the point I wanted to make earlier about the First World War mm. is you were asking about why someone like Charlie Hunnam or whatever is is doing is going on different places. He was sent there by the British army. He was offered the I mean okay, it was explained his his rationale for carrying out for doing carrying out these orders and mm. taking these missions was because he was trying to overcome this yeah the the great shadow yeah. cast by his father's horrendous you know whatever squandering fortune yeah. and being a bit of a, a drunken layabout. But it's just, you know, why why does he go to the First World War? Because he was fucking ordered to. The same reason as why he went on all these other no, missions, because no, no, he was no, ordered no, no, to no, by no. the British that, Army. That's not what I'm criticizing there. I'm criticizing its inclusion. Well, because uh, the one guy gets shot in the eye. Got to get rid of him. Also, you know, we've got a nice bit of mustard gas to well, sniff up. I would argue that what... Okay, so... If you look at the if you look at the real story of this, right? This is for me the particular point where a better actor like Robert Pattinson for example could have helped cuz right Fawcett's Fawcett didn't have to go to World War 1. He signed up f- to go to the front at 50 years of age, right? Now that's quite interesting and it's completely passed over and they like they don't really address his age, but that is fucking interesting that 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 guy did that. That like that says something about his character that could have been well, explored more effectively. But instead, you just have a kind of a... I'm going to say it. It's like... I mean, it's... Okay, anything with people going over the top in World War One. i I'm kind of interested. But, I mean, it it almost feels cheap, like, as an inclusion. For me, anyway, I don't think it... I don't think it fits. And I think it could have. Because I do think that... I do think that is really interesting. That this guy... Way, like like volunteered at age 50 to go to the front but i think that was again i think i mean have you watched the peter jackson documentary uh no i have world war one they shall grow not because old. yeah yeah that did if you looking at the the various soldiers in that documentary it's like a you know, like colorized footage from the first world war mm. Uh, all of the talking heads of soldiers, I mean, it must have been audio that was recorded in the 1960s yeah, or 70s yeah, yeah, or was. something. Yeah, it was recorded in the 60s. All of, these, uh, all of these soldiers, they all had a similar attitude, which was like, we're going to go and do it. We're going we're gonna to go and fight in the First World War because that's, that's what, I mean, obviously they didn't say the First World War. That would have been some weird inside <laughs> knowledge, but... <laughs> They, they were, that was just, it was just what you did. It was, there was an expectation. I feel like character, civilization has changed so much in that point. It's over a hundred years. People are not the same. People don't respond to things. Nowadays, the concept of being it's sent to war, fighting, fighting the for war. your government, etc. going et to the front. He needn't have gone to the front. He was a major. Well, so what you're saying that, but I think you're underestimating, uh, or or what the army meant to him, or what no, he wanted no, no, to. But no, no, to, I'm not. I, what I'm saying, is, I, I understand. I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. But I would say like he wanted, to, he wanted to fight. Yeah, no, no, no. I, he wanted no, no, to no, be I, involved. I'm totally getting that. I'm just saying it. Like that would have been a very interesting point to convey. Okay, so they should have made that clear in the film. You're saying they should like. Well, I th- I felt like I mean it was it was mentioned that he 
I feel like it was mentioned that he chose to go to the front. It wasn't mentioned that he was 50. No, it wasn't. And it's I mean, certainly, you just have because he still looked beautiful. It's certainly not conveyed well be just because Charlie Hunnam is like, I mean, and I don't like, okay. So you said Bradley Pitt was originally wanted for this and he was the first choice. Bradley Pitt is also a beautiful man. But God, it wasn't. It wasn't just that it was first choice. It was his production company, Plan B, that produced the film. Okay. Well, I mean, he can. Brad Pitt can fucking act. He. Yeah, I don't. There's no argument here. Yeah, and I. Uh, well, I. I'm just gonna stop making the complaint I, now I, because I, my my, no, ma- no, no, my no, major I, I issue with point. it is. I do see your point. My major issue with the whole thing is Charlie Hunnam, and like you know, having done several uh, podcasts with me now, that this sort of thing objectively is very much my bag. I just think having somebody more interesting, even with a more interesting fucking face in the middle of this, would have done it a much greater service. Maybe it's because I've seen Charlie... I've seen Charlie Hunnam be worse in so many things. I've seen him be really bad. So watching Charlie Hunnam in this, I was like, ah, he's, made, he's made a lot of progress. I was thinking watching, I was like, wow, this must be off the back of things like Sons of Anarchy. He's actually kind of able to convey something here see i right i don't even i don't even think he's terrible here i just think he's probably out you want someone else he's out of his depth and like robert pattinson is just there looking more interesting do you know what i mean like a like a temptation uh like if i was able to play championship manager with the casting i would easily switch him out that's fair, and the many other people have said the same things. You're certainly not alone there. Mm. You just reminded me that Robert Pattinson sought out James Gray. He wanted to work with him because I think it was because of two lovers. So again, like that explains like Robert Pattinson has been this is why he's ended up working with all these kind of high level film directors or yeah. auteurs of the modern auteurs is just because he's seen some of their work and he's reached out and wanted to work with them so similar to last week with uh, high life the same again with lost city of zed because it's such a small role that he takes on it, it's almost it feels a little surprising because yeah his star has risen so much even in the last five years yeah and actually do you know what like charlie hunnam's best moments in it are direct like when he's out there working with pattinson i think they have good chemistry in the film like i think hunnam's at his most believable in this where he's just like working in the jungle and particularly yeah when he's sparring off robert the useless i think that 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 works really well he just appears more competent and that apart from like desperate and a bit manic one thing that Fawcett definitely needs to appear is competent and Hunnam definitely gets that across but I think he's aided by Pattinson in that anyway getting back to it he's badly injured post-war and he reconciles with his son which point like is just bullshit I just I didn't like that I didn't buy it and then the two head off to find Zed again now in real life a friend of um, his son also accompanied them but here's just the two of them. And once again, the film gets a lift from when they arrive in the jungle and there's a very exhilarating sequence as they run away from two tribes of Indians. And then the story ends with them being shuffled off by candlelight in what, well, could be Zed, but we don't know. Do you think that's it? Do you think they've reached the city? I'm going to say no. I've read up a bit about what Zed actually is and where it's supposed to be the real city, which they found evidence of in recent years. Mm. And... uh it's on the border well it's in brazil apart from anything this story i mean that that way of ending it i feel 
is fine because it would have like particularly with it being based on real incidents it would have been an impossible one to end in any way cleanly right. so first so they it shows them being shuffled off by by these bunch of indigenous lads and then we get a flashback to let's call him tom holland's christening and then um, forward to uh, Cheeky returning a compass to the head of um, the Super Adventure Club. This didn't happen that the compass returned, but once again we um, yeah we get to see like the fine the film's finest visual motif as Cheeky exits the Super Adventure Club, and it almost looks like she's walking into the jungle, which you see a good bit of that. You're, I like that. Yeah, yeah, that was cool. And this overall. I think this is a very this is an interesting story with some very interesting ideas and who knows like how good it could have been for me anyway they had had somebody better in the lead but overall again I <laughs> I hate sounding like this because it's it the same thing happened to me with High Life last week there's so many things in High Life I liked but that clunky dialogue really let me down and oftentimes when Hunnam should have been looking more desperate, I just felt I wanted somebody more interesting delivering the dialogue. Um, and I've slagged him off so unfairly here, probably, because I like a lot of the stuff he's done. But I just I don't think this was for him. And it bugged me throughout. But overall, yeah, there was still a lot of stuff I would say that I liked in it. Um, and then the title card in the end of it, tells us that um, in recent years they've found an awful lot of evidence to support Fawcett's theories. Um, did you know Fawcett, like, he left a bunch of instructions on how to find his trail that was false information? Well, what was he trying to do? Just never to be To throw found. people off the, uh, off the trail so that they wouldn't find Zed. Zed's dead, baby. I recommend the New Yorker article. It's very interesting. I'll consider it. Maybe if they make it into a film, I'll watch that <laughs> instead. I just want to point out that uh, Tom Holland couldn't grow a moustache, so the moustache that he has to age him up is uh, is fake. Oh. Yeah, because his upper lip couldn't grow one. Ah, ah, ah. Also, I was surprised to find out, I didn't know this, that Tom Holland is the son of uh, stand-up comedian Dominic Holland. I did know that. I did not know that, hmm. on the, but then I saw them together and I was like, oh wow, yeah, yeah. you really do look alike. Big winner this week for you is Lost City of Z. I definitely enjoyed it more. Sorry, I, I should have preferred the artier black and white film. Ah. But it's Hanum all the way, baby. Darius Kanji. Well, I like no, it. I like it. I mean, because, I mean, I don't, I, I, yeah, Embrace of the Serpent, just because it's in black and white, I didn't think it was that arty. I thought it had a really clear narrative and a lot of stuff happened in it. So fuck you. Oh, wait, the other little bit of trivia that I enjoyed was that James Gray contacted Francis Ford Coppola and asked him for any advice about shooting in the jungle. And Coppola's response was the same one that he got from Roger Corman. Don't do it? Yeah. Really? Was that it? Exactly. Yeah. Uh huh. Just don't yeah. do it. Yeah, exactly. Don't go. <laughs> That's cool. The cut of the film that we both watched is 141 minutes. Mm -hmm. There's a mainland. There's a mainland China cut that's 104 minutes. Hmm. I wonder what they cut out. I have. I have no idea. But it's over half an hour of the film. Yeah. Maybe the First World War. I don't know. What's, what did China not want in a film? <laughs> Possibly, yeah. So, yeah, I, I hope to watch the mainland China cut at some point just to see the differences. Maybe Charlie Hunnam is better. He's just been edited out the entire film. I wonder what they'd cut out. 
Maybe all the yeah, idyllic-looking life in Britain. It's possible. Something like that. Mm. What are you bringing to the table this week? Well, this week we agreed to go for shit films, and I took that to heart, I think a little stronger than you did, and went for 2002's Joanna Man, a romantic comedy about a man who disguises himself as a woman to play in the WNBA. It looks truly awful. <laughs> yeah, it and does. I really... I really, really hope I don't win. It's only 90 minutes long, but I really, really hope I don't win the toss this week. <laughs> it looks... T- I can't believe you picked that, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I, we said shit films. I went for something like that's like a punchline. I've heard for ages people making jokes about Joanna Man. <laughs> <laughs> if you do win, I have got, like I I still haven't quite decided. I've got two options in my head. And, oh man! And I like I I could fully commit to shit films if I wanted. If you win, but anyway, we'll see. I'm bringing uh, something that I've just heard is not good, but I was still interested to see at some point. Uh, see, that's not fair. I think like I brought shit, and you brought you've heard it's not good. I brought something that I knew is awful by all accounts. I mean, I've heard this is pretty awful. I have seen your film twice. Go ahead. <laughs> You've seen this? You, John Carpenter's Vampires? Yeah, seen I've it seen twice. it at least twice. At least twice. And is it shit? It, was, it used to be on TV. I, I, quite, I enjoyed it. I've, heard it. I've heard it hasn't aged well, but it's fun enough. It's like it's a typical Carpenter. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a clear-cut 90-minute, you know what you're getting. All right. Well, I mean... We definitely don't know what we're getting with your film. I think it's your turn to toss. <laughs> oh, man. Heads or tails? What have I got? And <laughs> Okay, so you've got It's a One or the Leonardo da Vinci, the guy with all the arms and legs. Give me all the guy with the arms and legs. Oh, for fuck's sake. The worst part is I can't lie because I never cheat. I never lie at it. It's one. <laughs> so we're watching do you want a man <laughs> because i can't cheat i never cheat the toss I, even though in this case i do not want to well, win i've the never toss. cheated the toss either uh, believe it or not wow oh, man i know this is the worst that's what i mean this is the worst part is that we do actually follow the stupid coin <laughs> fucking hell it's funnier this way but jesus <laughs> yeah it is all right okay well so let me well let me tell you what you could have won which is disappointing i'm very disappointed so i had so many options for a response film i was thinking i was considering stuff i've already well first i was thinking vampire films because i haven't seen uh near catherine bigelow's near dark Mm. i was thinking about 30 days of night i haven't seen that Mm. Then I was thinking about films that are tonally quite similar to John Carpenter's Vampires. I've seen Tremors a million times, but I was yeah, thinking of rewatching Tremors just so we could talk about it. But then I was thinking about I've, there's plenty of John Carpenter's films, I, John Carpenter films I haven't seen. I know you're a big fan, but I've got a ton of gaps to fill in. So I was going to go for 1988's They Live. So I'm sure you'll be disappointed. I'm taking that off the ah, table. Shit, I am. All right, look, I'm. I've got a few things floating around in my head. So I'm going to ask you... Do you, want, do you want to toss a coin to choose them? No, I want you to... to uh, do you want to fully commit to watching shit movies this week? Or do you want me to g- bring something that could be good or could be bad? I've got it now. Yeah, let's go for the could be good, could be bad. Don't, don't go full shit because that's just... I don't know if okay, I can handle so too awful I'm going to fully embrace the cross-dressing theme 
of a of Juana Man, and I've never seen Brian De Palma's film Dressed to Kill. Oh, okay, nice. All right, great. Yeah, all right, the, there we go. Uh, Michael Caine. That's an interesting cross-dressing slasher film. So, okay, good. I haven't seen that either. Perfect. Excellent. Nice. So, well, I mean, god damn Wait, it. Wait, what was what was what was the what was the terrible film that you were considering? Norbit. Oh my god! Thank fuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so happy you did do that. Uh, yeah, I've never Man seen Norbit. To kill. I was, it was hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, I part of me wanted to bring white chicks to the table but uh, the thing i actually i actually have seen white chicks so i was like no nah, that'd be uh, disingenuous of me all right norbit that's the eddie murphy thing yeah oh the eddie God. murphy thing that is an oscar winning film which is mad <laughs> Nor- obviously norbit won an oscar well i mean we're backing away from the altar of art house and uh, you know big cinema at last anyway and uh, we'll get to see uh Juana Man. <laughs> Honestly, man, when you <laughs> told me that that's what you were bringing, I, I think I had to Google it three or four times, and <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, no, there's no way. Like, is this a culty thing or what is this? I've, <laughs> but I, so this is, this film is like legitimately a punchline, is it? For shit films. Yeah, yeah, I've heard, I've heard people joke about it. Yeah. Oh well, I'm looking. I'm. I am looking forward to it in a way. Then. All right. See you for Joanna, man. Peace out, hombre. Peace out.